When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics Podcast about things that happened in politics. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleagues SV Date. Hey Arthur. And Elise Foley. Hello. And this is a special Thanksgiving episode. We will have some long discussions later about John Maynard Keynes and the forgotten promise of a 15-hour week, which you know I'm really upset about. <laughs> and we'll also talk about what, what does it take to get just disgraced and shamed out of a really nice career in Washington. Uh, spoiler alert, we could not so- answer that question. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, and apologies, listeners, we're recording this in advance of Thanksgiving itself. So we, you know, we don't know the names of the four to six men who will turn out to have been long-term scumbags in that time. But there's important developments on Tuesday, at least. Donald Trump said weird, weird stuff about Roy Moore, the right. Republican running for Senate in Alabama. What What is the deal with Roy Moore? Man, that's a complicated question. Well, so with Trump, uh, he has kind of tried to not really comment on it. He he keeps getting asked about it by reporters and then he'll just walk out of the room. But then on Tuesday, he finally did say something. And basically what he said was that people should vote for Roy Moore. Um, so clip. he said basically that the women were wrong. Here's a Moore clip. It. Here's a clip. Clip. And I do have to say, 40 years is a long time. He's run eight races, and this has never come up. So 40 years is a long time. The women are Trump voters. Most of them are Trump voters. All you can do is you have to do what you have to do. He totally denies it. That's so weird. Yeah. No, it's yeah, not so weird at he, all. He also said that um, we don't need a liberal person in there, a Democrat, Jones. I've looked at his record. It's terrible on crime. It's terrible on the border. It's terrible on the military. So he he's saying, you know, vote for this guy that my own voters, as I acknowledge, say uh, assaulted them or, you know, harassed them or What's weird is creeped if, them out in a mall. If he was going to say this predictably Trumpy stuff, why was he so shy about it all this time? And you know, didn't he didn't he wasn't thinking of something clever to say when he avoided commenting on Roy Moore. I mean, I, I I'll let uh, SV give a guess <laughs> as well, but I I would think that it's because they've uh, probably other people in the White House have been successful at keeping him from commenting on it for right. a bit. That well, SV is our chief White House correspondent. Um, at least I think that was I think you yeah, nailed that, it that's, there. That's but, that's basically it. I mean, yeah. he has some serious problems if he goes out there and trashes Roy Moore, right? I mean, because then, hey, you know, there's a dozen women plus who came out and said very similar things about you, including some girls who were in the the Teen U.S. or Teen Universe contest, and he walked in and just kind of was uh, ogling naked teenagers, basically, right? So 
how does how does he have the moral authority to say Roy Moore, you must leave for uh, basically trying to date a fourteen year old um, and worse? Whereas he's had all these other things. Now, the smartest thing that could have happened is for him to just shut up. But this is Donald Trump. He's not good at that, right? So eventually, date a fourteen-year-old. He was coercing them and sort of stalking them at the mall. Well, the one we know of, the one who's come forward and talked about what happened. I mean, it's beyond dating. I mean, it's basically a sexual assault. What he tried. Now, as to the mall and other things, you know, we can leave all that go. The one fourteen-year-old by itself. Yeah, that, you'd <laughs> think that like, that would be enough. That should be that should be enough. She's a child, and th- our president has said, "Well, you know, it was forty years ago." Uh, he denies it. Okay, which is is what he you know he says about the allegations against him. As, he says, "I I don't those aren't true." That's what the right? White House says. They said they're all liars. They say you should take. You know, people accusing other people seriously, but in instances of Trump, Trump denies it. So it's, you know, nobody think about it again. So as it turns out, maybe that's all you have to do is just say something didn't happen. The 40 years ago point is incredibly stupid because it ignores the fact that we are in this watershed cultural moment in which 40 years worth of sexual abuse is being brought to light and dozens of men are being dumped out of their positions because of what they've been doing all that time, which Trump himself has commented on. Al Franken, for instance, and uh, I, uh, and Harvey Weinstein is like, oh, yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, in other words, you know what's happening here, buddy. But he's saying, no, why would these 40, why would all these women randomly come out and attack Roy Moore? Clearly, it's a political hack shot. It's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, The Onion had a really good headline that I, I don't have up or anything, but... That was like Roy Moore asks why women, you know, waited until we were at a cultural moment where people were actually listening to women's <laughs> accusations to speak up. And it's like, yeah, people didn't say anything before because people wouldn't have listened to them before. On You know, we're seeing that people, some people are listening to them now, but still some people aren't. So, um, yeah, the, the 40 years thing, I think, is totally bogus. But women, I think it'll work. I think that that argument works on some people. And the women who are speaking out are being attacked and in some cases uh, doxxed, I think, which is when, you know, uh, online creeps expose your personal information so that other online creeps can harass and, and uh, you know, call you up and stuff like that. Well, let's see how this unfolds. I mean, the, the polling has shown that... Uh, more went down after this uh, this came out. Now, remember, the president was in Asia when this first came out, and he avoided talking about it for a while. Now he said something. We'll see if that affects how the the race shapes up. I mean, this is amazing. If if Roy Moore ends up winning, that a guy accused of of molesting a fourteen year old is going to be elected to the United States Senate if this happens. You know what? I'm so glad you said that. It's time for bold predictions. I predict Roy Moore doesn't win. No, no, Senator Roy Moore. What do you say, Sharish? Well, you know, uh, the other guy's a liberal Democrat. He's bad on the wall. He's bad on. He's a former prosecutor. The president said he's bad on crime. He's a former prosecutor. That wow, sounds like that did not sound. I didn't (laughs) hear a bold prediction. prediction. I didn't hear a bold prediction there. Roy Moore's going to win. Yeah, I think Roy Moore's going to win. Ooh, (laughs) these bold predictions are clashing. Well, well, well I feel pretty. pretty unfor- you. I feel pretty confident about my bold prediction. Uh, I'm going to trust. I trust the women, and I trust the polls. I, they show him going down, so I, I think he'll go down. 
but we'll uh, we've got some time left. We'll find we out do. who has to eat the shit sandwich in less than a month. <laughs> so that's good. Um, also, let's quickly talk about the turkeys. <laughs> no, yes, the bigger news <laughs> that happened this week. He pardoned a turkey. It's a tradition that is lighthearted, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't it's really. It's good. Want, it's I a good a tradition. With it, yeah. The turkeys get to come to Washington and stay in a hotel, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that S- SV, I can't get an opinion on the turkeys what, out of you. What, what, yeah, what's your bold prediction? You know, bold prediction for the turkeys. They'll wander around wherever it is they wander around for the rest of their years. What do you want? I, mean, yeah. I wanted That's what that. turkeys I'm do. Ha- <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy with what I got there. All right. Uh, SV.A, Elise Foley, thanks so much. Have a great Thanksgiving. You too, Arthur. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Daniel Marins. And through the magic of technology, we are also joined by the disembodied voice of Zach Carter. Welcome to everyone. Welcome to me. This is a a Thanksgiving Day episode of the podcast. However, in the spirit of transparency, I must disclose that we are not recording this on Thanksgiving Day. But if you are listening to it on Thanksgiving, we are I, I we are sipping that. hot apple cider though, just for the mystique. We thought we would take a step back from the grind of daily politics to discuss big stuff. John Maynard Keynes and the promise of a 15-hour week that even though he was a genius and said it would happen, it didn't happen. Um I'm pretty disappointed because I think But Arthur, who's Keynes? Uh you know, well Zach Carter is actually writing a book about Keynes. I sure am. And that's why that's why we have Zach's voice. And uh, is, Zach's voice, could you please help us out? Who is Keynes? I mean, you hear his name constantly if you're writing about economics. And he's, a, he's considered one of the greatest modern economists, if not the greatest. Zach, am I, think I going he's the greatest far? economist, uh, full stop. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some competition for that, for that post. And I, and I think he's... Uh, I think it's actually a little bit insulting to regard him only as an economist. I think he's uh, he's a really powerful political thinker from uh, from the Great Depression, whose ideas 
I think really provided justification for uh, the modern state as we understand it after FDR uh, and uh, you know the, the British welfare state with the National Health Service, all of the rest. Um, everything we think of in sort of outside the Soviet world uh, is that that style of government. I think is based in the ideas that he put forward in a book called "The General Theory of Unemployment of Employment, Interest, and Money," which is a very good book, even though it's very boring. That's his big book, but I, I wanted to talk specifically about an essay he wrote called "The uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren." And uh, what year was that essay, Zach? That was nineteen thirty. It's maybe the best essay ever written about economic policy. So what he said in that essay, I mean, most of what he said has has proven true that there would be tremendous economic growth, that the Great Depression would subside, and everything would get better. Our living standards would rise phenomenally. And that a hundred years from the time of his writing in 1930, that the work week would be 15 hours long. Unfortunately, the work week has been stuck at 40 hours since about that time, though it had come down from like 60, 70 hours in the hundred previous years. So, Zach, what do people think he got wrong there? Well, I think the most, I mean, there, there are people who have debated this essay for, you know, 80 years now. Uh, but I think the most compelling criticism of it, uh, of what went wrong, is essentially uh, that Keynes just didn't account for how uh, the, the gains from worker productivity uh, were, were going to be distributed. Uh, he was basically right. Uh, in 2008, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who's a Nobel laureate economist, uh, did a little essay looking back on, on what had happened. And he said, you know, if you just look at, at the GDP of the United States, uh, you can divide up you know, the, the economic output per person across every human being in the entire world, in fact, and everybody's above the poverty line. We could eliminate global poverty right now. We just don't do it. Uh, we, we just don't. Instead, we have a lot of – we have really epic economic inequality. And so Keynes didn't really grapple with how these things were going to be distributed. But I think what's remarkable about the essay and that the economics profession has been really reluctant – to deal with is this idea that economic policy is not really about scarcity of resources anymore. I think the, the entire profession, the, the formulation of supply and demand dynamics uh, in economic policy is really based on this idea that there's not enough stuff to go around and that if you want to fix the economy, if you want to solve economic problems, the only way to do it is to increase output and create more stuff. Uh, and that's just not true anymore. Uh, we are in a post-scarcity economy where people do have to do some amount of work in order to produce the things that are necessary for daily life. Uh, but we don't actually need to work as much as, as we do. And in fact, the, the fact that we work so much is, is in part a, a failure of distribution. It's also, I think, uh, a product of, of this sort of consumer-driven economy. Instead of relying on uh, you know more progressive political systems to secure the welfare of our citizens, uh, we rely on, on consumption. And so there's there are just whole industries creating trinkets and pointless crap uh, that people buy to, so that other people can have jobs. Everything we do or that most people do that is considered work is actually some contrived bullshit that you just have to do in order to have paper pushed your way. But like there's enough – food and goods around that it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be a challenge you know we shouldn't be immiserating millions of people all the time by throwing them out of work I, you know there's a book of essays about what Keynes got wrong in that essay it's called revisiting Keynes and it's all these economists including Joseph Stiglitz and it drove me crazy how they were like 
Well, people just you know don't really want to work less because they'd rather earn more money and have right it, it, it's more sort of, things. Which is sort of like saying that the voters get the politicians they want. Well, they get the politicians they want given how misinformed they are. And I think I think you know the the same same goes for the work week. I mean, we've internalized the psychology that has we've been inculcated with since we're born, which is that if you don't work hard, you're not going to get ahead. And and if you're not doing well, it's probably because you're not working hard enough, maybe in your current job or to get the education that would put you ahead in the labor market. And so there's kind of a, I think, I don't know, and I don't know what you think about this, Zach, a, a real, one of the great successes of, of the oligarch class here in the United States is is really instilling a sort of a sort of Stockholm syndrome on on the broader populace. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's something intuitive about uh, your work being tied to your survival. I mean, we all live off of our paychecks, right? And and when we get paid, we think, oh, this is our reward for our labor, and that is true. But it's also just the byproduct of an accounting system over which we have no control and an accounting system that's essentially arbitrary uh, and which Keynes was very explicit when he, when he wrote later the general theory, um, you know, required a lot of really arbitrary, convoluted maneuvering uh, to keep going. I mean, there's a point in, in the, uh, the general theory where he says, um, you know, if we get into a bad enough recession, if the government just prints banknotes puts them in bottles and buries them at the bottom of coal mines and then pays people to go and dig them up out of mines, that would be better than doing nothing because you'd be putting people to work to go find money. And it strikes a lot of conservatives is it strikes most people is just absurd and outrageous. I mean, how could it be productive to do something that's inherently meaningless like that? Um, but but the, that that's why it's a, that's why it's an important observation. The monetary system, most of what we do to create value and keep it going around in the economy, is meaningless. We don't need to do it. It just happens to be the system that we use. We could have a different system. We don't have a shortage of resources uh, that prevent us from having a, a, a different a different kind of lifestyle. It's a political choice. So Zach was Keynes the first advocate of a universal basic income? Is that what you're telling me? Was he the universal basic income hipster? <laughs> You know, I I I don't know if I don't know if he would have called no, Zach would be the hipster. Yeah, I'd, and he would be the obscure band. Right. Yeah, he'd be like he'd be the early records. Uh, you know, I I wouldn't say that he was an advocate of a universal basic income. I would I would say more that he's an advocate of of, of a good life. Uh, he has a vision of of how people ought to live, which is essentially derived from the from the British leisure class from the early twentieth century. You know, he thinks you should be. Look at, spending your time in museums, looking at really fine art and drinking nice wines and enjoying beautiful evenings and, and not spending so much time, uh, you know, stuck in the rat race. And and it's it's a very elite perspective, uh, but it's also tied to, uh, to, to economic reality. We, we don't – it should not be the case, he believes, that that lifestyle is reserved to a select few. He, he believes that within two generations, in fact – just by doing nothing, it will be accessible to everybody. Imagine if we'd actually worked hard to make it more accessible to everybody. Okay, so here's how this is relevant to the Thanksgiving holiday. The, the number of hours worked annually by workers in the U.S. has not declined substantially in decades, even though it has in other countries as the productivity gains have been spread more fairly in those places. And I think we actually have we're actually going in the opposite direction here. And Thanksgiving is a perfect example. 
uh, because it's an example of a, a holiday that's being whittled away for some people. For people who work in stores that open on Thanksgiving Day or at midnight Mm -hmm. or on Black Friday, instead of just staying closed. And this is – people take for granted that the 40-hour week is just the way it is because that's how it happens to have been for all our lives and all our parents' lives. But in fact, there could be a movement to reduce the hours of labor and one way you could could go about this movement would be by resisting – the encroachment of work on holidays like Thanksgiving, and uh, I, I personally feel very passionately about that because you know I've I per- I have experienced three day weekends and find them great, <laughs> and and think that there should be more of them. And I think most people would feel that way as well if it were just a topic of conversation. But it sounds like communism, so nobody goes well, there. You know, I, I mean, I would go. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think this is this one of the flaws in in the essay by Keynes is that he he's he's really afraid of social conflict. He's really afraid of of rapid change, and he he portrays this as something that's just going to gradually uh, occur over 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 time. Um, you know. I think that's how most people think the weekend came about to begin with. Like that, oh well, things just sort of got to people the point. People died where you, for the weekend. Exactly, exactly. There are labor there are labor movements where people were actually killed fighting for your right to not go to work on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it, it's 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 a political choice to make people work forty hours a week, and it takes political activism uh, to ensure that people could work less. Uh, you know, it won't just happen. No one is going to say, "Please work less so that my profits can be slimmer." We need a what the what the shorter hours movement needs. You know the the sort of forgotten shorter hours movement is a new champion, maybe a charismatic orange cat who loves lasagna and just hates Mondays. Garfield twenty twenty. Yeah, and mo- Mondays are the dog on the table. They need to be kicked off. No, you know it's interesting. I mean, I, I I've spoken about people with this, and and there are people who thought it was pretty lacking in imagination and we're disappointed that Bernie Sanders who wants to create a, a single payer healthcare system in this country and make university education free uh, did not consider proposing a 4-day work week or, or something dramatic like that. We don't even have mandatory paid vacation in this country, yeah. which is a pretty big travesty. Zach, I, I'm curious though because I know that you're you're a scholar of Keynes now and I, I don't know if we're allowed to mention this. Are, but are you a scholar a, of Keynes now? If if you spend more than a year reading through the 30-volume collected writings of John Maynard Keynes and go through his papers at King's College, you're a Keynes scholar. <laughs> I don't care if you have a degree. And I've done that. Did you do that? Yeah, I was going to say. So that didn't really answer you the did, question. But don't you need a? Do you? That means you have a robe and a square hat. Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. This is the thing. The thing about libraries is that books are free. I, I, I hate to be stealing this line from Glenn Beck, but he's right. You can go and teach yourself things, uh, and just because you have a fancy oh. degree doesn't mean you know more than people who have spent a lot of time uh, going going through the archives. Um, but yes, I, I feel like we're checking all the socialist boxes on this episode. We're <laughs> plugging public libraries. We're getting rid of the work week. Uh, but 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 you know what I was starting to say, Zach, is just that you, having studied sort of his bro- the broader arc of his work, it's interesting that he has such a blind spot for the political conflict that would prevent the changes that he's seeking because he's so abundantly aware. I think 
of the consequences of not adopting these changes, right? Because he connected the creeping wave of authoritarianism in middle 20th century Europe to economic instability and and inequality. No, I think he's a, he's a remarkable figure uh, because of those sort of internal psychological contradictions. He fundamentally is a member of the British aristocracy. Uh, he's afraid of change. Uh, he's a Burkean conservative, I would say. Edmund Burke, the the you know the conservative thinker who wrote about the horrors of the French Revolution in the in the 1790s. Um, but he looks at the world and says, "Look, this is really bad. What's going on? Uh, radical, awful social upheaval and violence is happening, and we have to do something about it. We can't just pretend that if we do nothing, um, this this wave of awfulness." Uh, will just go away. He says, you know, we, we have to do something to preserve these institutions. They won't preserve themselves. And essentially, the, the platform that he comes up with is uh, it, it becomes used as a justification for the New Deal under FDR in the United States for the British welfare state, the National Health Service. But it's really a much more powerful doctrine. Uh, you know, I, I think ultimately the sort of left wing ideas that are associated with Karl Marx as uh, as a matter of policymaking you can really uh, get those out of out of the general theory uh, without too much trouble. Uh, what you can't get out of it is is a theory of violent revolution and of confrontational class politics. Um, he doesn't like confrontation, uh, and he's and he is he's he's really frightened of it. Um, he, he there's a very real sense in which his thinking is is devoted to avoiding that that type of confrontation. And this is why I think he's an interesting character. Now, you know, we talk about the rise of this left in the United States that's concerned about economic issues. But it's not really a left in the sense that it's radical and it's trying to subvert institutions. Um, Bernie Sanders wasn't going around saying we should dismantle the Federal Reserve, that we should we should tear up the Constitution, right? It's, it's, he's very much operating within this sort of uh, the, the continuity of, uh, of the American political past. Uh, and I think that's interesting. You know, and, and the po- to, to your point, this whole issue of was K- is Keynes really kind of this proto- economic populist or left-winger, however one wants to put it, wouldn't a radical critique of Keynes be that, you know, based on what you've just told me, that he was really trying to save capitalism from itself, that he was really trying to reform the system in order to preserve and elongate it rather than overturn it? Yeah. And I, look, and I think there are times he, he's inconsistent on this over, over the course of his his career. There are times when he sounds like he's saying that exactly that. that I, I'm, I'm here to, to save capitalism. I'm here to preserve, uh, you know, the way of life that existed uh, before World War One, essentially. Uh, and there are other times when he says, you know, he's at the far left of the political spectrum uh, and the republic of his imagination is uh, is essentially unimaginable uh, under present day politics. Um, you know, he's he's more like uh, you know, he's like any of us. He's somebody who who worked for 40 years and had opinions that changed over time. And uh, and it, it, not every moment was he, uh, you know, ha- having the same set of sort of uh, uh, emotional intuitions about his own work that he had at others. Uh, but yeah, there there are there are radical criticisms of him that say that he's a conservative who who got it all wrong and wanted to you know essentially help uh, capitalists exploit people. But I think those criticisms are wrong. Let me let me give before we close out. Let me give my pet theory for why the uh, shorter hours movement stopped working and we don't have three day weekends permanently. And it is just we we boofed it on health insurance when during World War. To there were price controls and limits on what you could pay people. Companies got around that by offering health insurance. And a few years later, there was a question of whether that should be taxed as pay. 
hmm. and Congress, like in a, in base, almost like you know, the IRS had administratively decided not to, I think, and then the IRS, then Congress was like, okay, not taxable, and it is now the like single biz, biggest untaxed benefit tax expenditure in the tax code, and it's a terrible. Health insurance. So how does system. this prevent the shortening of the week? Because you, everything's because, so tied to the job. Because or? there's such a giant fixed cost associated with every employee. Because it became oh, okay. the um, we're the only country where it's like the employer's job right. to provide health insurance. That there's a massive incentive to keep people working longer hours because you're spending all this money on their health insurance anyway. It's a very interesting point. And just a side note, that is also, by the way, the reason we have such intense resistance to a national public health insurance program in this country. Oh, it's a giant policy trap that's causing, like, spitting off problems in every direction. (laughs) And it was just a mistake in the 50s. Yeah. When everyone was, everyone was breathing leaded gasoline and had lead paint in their houses and lead pipes. It was just a mistake from a stupider time. And that's why we have to cherish our, our our long Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Bye, everybody. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined by my HuffPost colleagues, Elliot Nelson and Elise Foley. And what we want to talk about is what does it take to be so disgraced that you cannot have a fancy political or media career in Washington slash New York? What does it take to be a persona non grata, to be put on the ice flow by your lobbying firm? And never seen again. Yeah, and like given a little nudge, yeah. so you float out into the the Arctic Sea. It takes a lot sometimes. Yeah, it's the spoiler. I don't think it takes. I, I think it takes infinity transgressions. Like I don't think there's a limit. As long as you're a person with no shame, you can just paddle your ice flow back and return to your igloo and continue doing the bad things you did that were supposed to be too disgraceful for you to stay. I mean, Although, eventually you might get sent to prison, right? So, like, Anthony Weiner resigned in disgrace from Congress, but then he ran for mayor, but then he got arrested for uh, getting pictures. Okay, so, yeah. So, there's a way. It's possible. Getting physically handcuffed is yes. certainly a barrier. But is it, though? I mean, yeah, we here's, don't know. here's a thought experiment. Back. It's... Anthony Weir's in jail for, what, 8 to 10 years? So it's, you know, 2028, 2027. Anthony Weiner's out of jail. And tell me that he doesn't get a Russia Today show. <laughs> well, we don't need to do a thought experiment. Plenty of Washington people have gotten shows been arrested. And gotten shows. Trey Raydell busted on a cocaine car- charge in uh, 2013, I believe. He was a Republican member of Congress from Florida. He resigned, big disgrace. In the last year, big book deal. Like, here's here's my tell-all in Washington, which is, uh, this is a particular way of handling your disgrace. You know, you get a, you get a second chance. I mean, it worked for Jack Abramoff. I mean, pro- arguably the 
the very exemplar of Washington corruption, and now he's you know does book get books deal book deals. He goes on tour. He talks about how terrible Washington is now, and and that's a route too. Is you can just sort of talk about how terrible things are and how you yourself were were part of the problem. Okay, so- I mean the thing is though, it's not just these people who have redemption stories. Like there are some people who just. Like don't have any consequences at all. Like have some sort of controversy and then are staying, you know, stay in Congress. So I mean, I think the best example in the last well, <laughs> well, there there is the president who admitted to sexually assaulting women on tape and was elected president. Uh, and then there's Greg Gianforte who body slammed a reporter on tape and is now a member of Congress. He I, said he was sorry pretty fast. Yeah, he yeah, you know, and and. I, a lot of people have been sorry too, and you know, I I don't know if that necessarily would qualify for being given. I mean, the, he didn't just body slam him; he got charged for it. He was arrested. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he was arrested. It was, it was pretty serious. I mean, the old saying in politics was always, you know, "live boy, dead girl." You know, and and you know, obviously now. In some, in sometimes in good ways, our social mores have changed. But in other ways, in that our standards of what politicians are expected to do have dropped so considerably. I was talking to a, a pretty senior Republican lobbyist about this, and he said to me that quote consensual adultery is the new chivalry. I mean, that's kind of where we are. I mean, where, what what was it? Five, six, seven, eight years ago, two thousand, I guess nine, when Mark Sanford had to resign. Uh, uh, South Carolina gubernatorialship. He was the governor, and he went missing. And he went missing simply because he was in Argentina with his mistress, his Argentine mistress, and that was scandal enough to to cause him to resign. Um, you know, on the flip side, David Vitter, uh, wait, wait a minute, Mark uh, Mark Sanford is now, now in Congress. Now a member. He is now a member of Congress. Walking around like all the other guys, talking to reporters. It's me, Congressman Mark Sanford. That's right, and you know, and I think that's an example of it's changing. I mean, I think. Oh, can, what you're saying is what what Sanford did wasn't that bad. It was just an affair. I mean, I did. I didn't. And maybe now wouldn't make somebody resign in disgrace having an affair. Although people still do have. I mean, I had, a, I had another, have to, have I had another Republican operative tell me that what Sanford did was, in many ways, the most lofty ethical lapse a person can do. I mean, here was a person just in love with another adult who was in love with him. Are they still together? I think so. Yeah. Uh, another another test case: Michael Grimm, Republican congressman from New York, a few years ago, uh, got mad at a reporter for trying to ask him a question. This was on camera. There's video of this, and he's saying, "You know, don't ask me this question." And the direct, the act, the famous quote is, "I will break you in half, like a little boy." <laughs> when he also threatened to throw the reporter off a balcony, they were on, they were on a balcony, one yeah. at that time. <laughs> and so that, you know, he didn't. Uh, that wasn't what got him in trouble. He wound up going to prison for not paying employee taxes on a business he had, like a juice business. And so now he's out of prison. And trying to run for Congress again. And that raises an interesting point. I mean, a number of people I've talked to about this issue keep raising that. I think the increasingly fractured nature of our politics allows a person to basically be utterly repulsive to three quarters of the population. But as long as you are perhaps playing the victim or are in the trenches with that last quarter of the population, you know, look at someone like Roy Moore. 
you know, even if Roy Moore doesn't win the special election in Alabama uh, in early December, chances are he's going to come away if he doesn't step down before now and then, between now and then. Chances are he's going to come away with at least 40, even 45 percent of the vote. 40 to 45 percent of voters in Alabama are okay with voting for a guy who – what are we up to now? Five, six women have accused him oh, of – Oh, no. Of, it's a it's higher, up higher now. Yeah. Um, have I mean it may, of, it may be yet it's, higher it's kind of a, at the time people hear this recording. Right. So let's just say that a number of women have accused him of major sexual impropriety uh, uh, and nevertheless – a lot of people think this man is is fit to be in the United States Senate. Now, this is not just impropriety. This is impropriety with children. With children. Yeah. This is this is this is being sexually lecherous with underage women, girls, with girls. And nevertheless, a lot of people think that he's fit to be in, in the Senate. And this goes to this larger issue, and it's what actually bringing Michael Grimm back into the equation is. You know, because of our increasingly fractured and tribal politics now, what you can do is, is take your controversy and just say, no, no, it's it's the liberal media conspiracy. It's it's everyone else who's who's out to get us, and 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 play yourself the victim. And that's what Michael Grimm is doing. He appeared alongside Steve Bannon in in a, in a highly talked about photo op, Ugh. and now he he's playing the the hashtag MAGA MAGA, however we decide on pronouncing it. Game, make um, America great again. And look, I mean, it 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 does kind of go both ways. I mean, we're now having this renewed conversation about what Bill Clinton did. You know, Matt Iglesias had that much talked about piece in Vox about look taking away all the other accusations against Bill Clinton. He admitted to carrying on an affair with a 22 year old intern, which by any standards in the current moment we're having, I think justifiably, is something that certainly warrants. Uh, uh, at least consideration of a person resigning, you know that is gross professional uh, malfeasance. And nevertheless, also people, uh, Clinton backers, Democrats, uh, a lot of them do nevertheless view that kind of talk as sort of a sort of the the vast right wing conspiracy. And now you know, look, I think if you look at it, uh, you, you see far more people on the sort of Trump populist right playing this sort of card, but. It goes both ways. I think. Well, but I think another another thing is it's not just the people who think it's a conspiracy. There's a lot of people who think, yeah, maybe that did happen, but I'm okay with it because I would rather vote for any Republican, whether he is a potential, you know, pedophile or not, than any Democrat. And a lot of people who say, who say, well, I'm glad that Bill Clinton was there, even though he's a creep. It seems like Bill Clinton is getting retroactively banished right now. Well, it's also, I think, something for Democrats. You know, Republicans are like, well, you you guys have this guy. So people are like, oh, now, you know, we'll cast him aside. Well, now we're going to prove a point by saying that, no, we do think he's well, a monster, which a is minute. fair enough. Two, two, we're talking about two trends that seem to be happening simultaneously. One is that it appears to be increasingly possible for totally disgraced people to just have no shame, stick around, and have great careers. At the same time, there's a lower tolerance for men who are total creeps. And because of that, at the same time, Michael Grimm and Roy Moore are trying to come to Washington – People in Washington are saying, God, Bill Clinton was so gross and we should get off the stage. Yeah, so I think it'll be interesting to see whether that changes. So we've had all these instances in the past of people managing to keep their careers. 
But now, given um, this, you know, huge moment that we're in of people taking all of a sudden sexual harassment and assault more seriously, whether that keeps up and whether people can survive their political career, can survive something like that. And I, you know, I'm kind of a pessimist on it. I think probably um, Roy Moore will be elected and it, he will. But, you know, oh, Trump was elected. So um but I think it'll be interesting to see and how they handle, you know, Democrats really jumped on Franken right away. Um, Al Franken mistreated this model who he had appeared on stage with at a USO thing. And he he was like really gross and groped her and kissed her on stage and then just said and sorry. In rehearsal, yeah. And said, please investigate me, which seemed like a different you know, kind of thing that might not have happened before. And everyone, as of you know, last week was like, "Well, should he resign or not?" It was like a, a pretty interesting question. Well, I think also the the Franken thing crystallizes how we are having this confluence of both a renewed discussion of the 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 pervasiveness of of sexual harassment and assault by people in positions of men in positions of power. Um, and also this sort of uh, uh, tribalization or increasing tribalization of our politics. And I think Franken's an interesting example where it doesn't really suit anyone's purposes right now to say, oh, no, Al Franken is the victim of a witch hunt. You know, it, he he right now, as opposed to someone like Roy Moore, who a lot of people on the far right can say, oh, no, it was the fake news Washington Post who broke this story. It is a bunch of coastal elites who are who are going after Al Franken or excuse me, going after Roy Moore. Uh, whereas with Al Franken, I mean, it doesn't really serve anyone on his side of the aisle or his his corner of the political spectrum to say, oh, no, people are going after Al Franken. Yeah. All of his allies, you know, I think quite justifiably are saying, oh, no, uh, sexual uh, malfeasance is a major problem right now that we need to root out. And it doesn't really, I mean, in the most Machiavellian sense, it doesn't do anyone – in the Democratic Party or on the left, any good right now to defend Al Franken. Whereas with someone like Roy Moore, you know, there are a lot of people out there who can sort of use these stories to say, oh, no, Roy Moore, this is another example of, you know, the liberal media conspiracy trying to demonize like a good-hearted Christian conservative. Um, You're saying in a certain way it's easier for Republicans to fend off these kinds of well, accusations? Well, I think, I think that – what happened with Franken is it would be fascinating to know, and I guess we we can't because that's not how uh, time works, but um, <laughs> how Democrats would have responded to it if it wasn't right after Roy Moore. So as soon as the news came out, you saw a bunch of conservatives on Twitter being like, let's see you know, how lefties act now that it's one of their own. And I think people on the left were really eager to prove them wrong and say, no, you guys are the hypocrites. Yeah. We are good. We are willing to call out one of our own. And so you saw people really jump on it quickly. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have. But I don't think that that necessarily would have happened if we weren't right after the Roy Moore thing. And, you know, people on the left weren't trying to prove that they were better than conservatives. I don't know how they would have responded, but I think it would have been a little bit different. On, on the question of what does it take to, for somebody to be banished from Washington? There's a, a tension between the type of per, within the type of person you actually want to be a political leader. You want somebody who's really ambitious, and that can mean somebody who's you know not embarrassed 
And it can get really extreme where it's somebody who appears to have no capacity for shame like Donald Trump or Newt Gingrich. So I, I think it's uh, it's it could be that our culture is degraded, but this it could be that the degradation of culture is just revealing a thing about human nature and how leadership works. But I think Newt Gingrich is an interesting uh, uh, person to focus on here because, you know, Newt Gingrich has sort of always been regarded even when he was in Congress and Speaker of the House as a sort of bomb thrower, as, as a very combative sort of figure. But even in the 90s, he still sort of was, as it were, in the club. You know, he was still a guy who, you know, didn't violate so many norms of Washington politics to be considered you know, uncouth or, or, you know, a persona non grata. Well, he did pay a, a giant ethics fine. He was a philanderer. You know, he uh, shut down the government. He did. I mean, he did. No, and he, and he did all sorts of terrible things, but also so have, I mean, how many other from uh-huh. Ted Kennedy to, I mean, just, I mean, just name a politician before 1995 or really ever. Uh, but with, with Newt Gingrich, it's an interesting transition where here you had a guy who had, you know, you could have called just sort of an establishment Republican. Um, now, admittedly, what was the establishment had, had shifted rightward very much uh, under his tenure. But even during his speakership and even after it and even during his his various sort of controversies, this was a guy who I think fell within you know, the bounds of being a sort of normal-ish establishment-y – at least by the norms of the day, Republican. And here's a guy who now fast forward, who has found a lot of success getting on board with, you know, earlier this decade with the Tea Party bandwagon, and now with the Trump bandwagon. And it highlights that you can actually find a lot of success if you find that quartile of the population that's just going to believe you no matter what if you're on their side and just play to it aggressively. And now he's coming out with books about, you know, how to live in Trump's America and explaining, you know, he had that. Well, he's book always called. been churning out these shitty books, right? And it sort of, and it, it 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 sort of goes to the point that he, I think, has lost a lot of credibility with the rest of of the political spectrum, even a lot of mainstream. At, or, or, I, I think uh, I think people considered him weirder at the time than you are suggesting now. I think he's always been. A deeply weird and, and possibly crazy seeming person. Oh, he's a lot always of he's always been a little weird, but I think it's also fair to say that his affiliations have gone from being, let's say, borderline establishment to borderline fringe to just full on like fringe now. You know, um, and it, it crystallizes just the way that arguably the safest way you can find success in politics is just finding that group, that tribe, and just playing to it aggressively. Um, All right. Elise Foley, uh, Newt Gingrich, thanks so much for being here. (laughs) (laughs) Buy my book. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, S.V. Date, Elliot Nelson, Zach Carter, and Daniel Marins. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends and give it a rating. Those you know ratings really make me happy. If there's something, I mean, a good rating, bad ratings don't make me happy. Uh, and if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened 
at HuffPost.com. I will respond personally. Thanks to all of you for listening. Bye-bye.